to turn your Bibles at this time to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We are coming to the end of this book. Wonderful study, a very fruitful study, uh, very uh, practical in many, many ways. We come to a section that may seem as if it is merely a set of instructions, but here we see Paul's plan and his perspective in ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 through 12. The text of Scripture reads, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, For I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God, we give you thanks for the reading of your word, for the hearing of it. And we pray, Father, at this time you would open our eyes through the illumination of your Holy Spirit that we might see and understand great things which we do not yet know. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I was reminded by my niece that many years ago... I had the opportunity to go whitewater rafting just as she did this past summer. It was exciting, it was exhilarating, it was thrilling, it was risky, it was adventurous, it was fun. A lot of fun. The guide at the front of the boat, or the back of the boat I should say, would give us instructions. He would yell out when we should oars down and row, and the other side would put their oars up, or whether we should row hard or have both oars up, just so that the boat wouldn't spin, that it wouldn't flip, that it wouldn't navigate into the rapids. But my experience was thrilling. It was risky. But my experience was nothing like that of Palmer Chinchen, who writes in the book True Religion. And he writes, My brothers and I traveled to the western edge of Zimbabwe to raft the Zambezi River. We boarded our raft at the base of the Victoria Falls. Massive amounts of water spilled over the top of the giant falls and dropped almost a thousand feet. The roar was deafening. The falls are the largest... 
in the world. More than a mile wide and 300 feet high. Mist from the spray that fills the air like fog can be seen for 50 miles. The locals call it smoke that thunders. The water from the fall rushes down the gorge in torrents, creating the world's largest rapids. In the United States, the highest class rapid you are allowed to raft is class 5. Zambezi's whitewater rapids can top seven and eight. As I sat on the edge of the eight-person raft, all suited up in a tight overstuffed jacket and a thick crash helmet, I felt like an overcautious tourist about to mount an overpowered moped in Honolulu or rent rollerblades on Huntington Beach. The Zambezi can't be that dangerous, can it? And then our guide said, when the raft flips... There was no if the raft flips or on the off chance that we get flipped. But when the raft flips, he went on, stay on the rough water. You'll be tempted to swim towards the stagnant water at the edge of the bank. Don't do it because it is in the stagnant water that the crocs wait for you. (laughs) They are large and hungry. Even when the raft flips, stay on the rough water. He continues to write, stagnancy will kill your spirit. The church of tomorrow must resist stagnancy. God needs us out there in the rough waters, pouring our lives into people. Live, live in the white water, unquote. And serving God is like that, isn't it? When you're involved and really Pouring yourself into someone else's life, involved in ministry, it can be like the Whitewater Rapids, can't it? It's exciting, it's exhilarating, there's fulfillment, it's risky, you might get hurt, it takes sacrifice, it can be tough. But in the closing chapter, this is what Paul says. He says, a wide open door of ministry has been opened for me, and yet there are many adversaries What may seem like a miscellaneous hodgepodge of instructions, we see here his perspective, his attitude, and he notes that he has plans, that he has plans, and these plans are to spend time with people. Spend time with people, and there's a door of effective ministry open for him, and he is going to be an encourager. So we see the first part of what he says, that ministry requires... Planning for people. Planning for people. Verses 5 through 7. He says, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going to Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Verse 7. I do not wish to see you now just in passing. Paul had at this time stayed in Ephesus for three years, and at the end of his time in Ephesus, he wrote this letter to the Corinthians and likely gave it to Timothy to deliver He had hoped to follow Timothy a little while later, as it says in 419, and visit Corinth both to Macedonia and from Macedonia. But he says, now, you know what, my plans have changed. I'll come to you after I go through Macedonia. So he's going to skip Corinth, and on the way back, he's going to go through Macedonia. Why? His text says, I do not wish to see you now just in passing. In other words, he wasn't this fly in, fly out type of visit, apostle. He wanted to remain, it says there, with you for some time. 
He wanted to spend time with them. He didn't one, hi, I'm here in town. How are you? And I'm going to take off to Macedonia now. And it shows a couple of things about Paul's mindset when it came to ministry. And the first thing we note that he has in his mindset for ministry is that he makes plans. He makes plans for ministry. He was a forward-thinking person. He may not know all that is going to happen, but he had plans. He had plans of when he was going to go stay with them, how he wanted to see them, what he was going to do. And he gave instructions regarding this. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, I'm just going to wake up tomorrow morning and find out what I feel like doing. I'm going to be led by the Spirit. He doesn't say just to willy-nilly walk through life. He doesn't reject planning as if it's some sort of Western or cultural or time-oriented thing, which some people resist. They resist making plans, having some type of idea what's going to happen, what they want to do in the future. He wasn't some sort of laissez-faire attitude, no. There was some type of direction, some type of desire of where he wanted to go with a caveat as he writes there, if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. And that's how we're to live too. James, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 4, it tells us specifically what Paul, what James writes there. And he warns against the danger of being presumptuous. Many of us, we plan, but we forget. James chapter 4, it tells us in verse 13 through 15. James writes, Come now, verse 13, You who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. He's warning against presumption that this is my plan. Tomorrow will be just like today. He's not against planning as we see Paul does. And James is not speaking about the fact that we should not plan as some have difficulty because of what? Fear, the lack of confidence that, you know what, God will still be in control no matter what I plan. All in the caveat that Lord willing, Lord willing, this is what I believe the Lord desires that I do. Knowing that God is still and always will be in control. Just like Proverbs 16, 9 says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Howard Hendricks, one of the premier Christian educators in the U.S., would often say, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Not only do we find Paul planning, but he plans for people. He plans for people. And many times in our culture, our culture, we like to have plans. We like to have programs. We like to have property. We like to have physical things. But many times it's to the sacrifice of people and teaching biblical principles of what the scriptures would say. Because you see, Paul puts people as important. He didn't want to fly by the seat of his pants. Come in, come out. And he said specifically, I do not wish to see you now just in passing. But we do that, don't we? It's easy to do that. I've got my plans. After church, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go here. I'm going to buy that. I'm going to rush off to that sale. I'm going to run here and we've got our agenda. 
Even at church. I've got this responsibility and we pass by people not knowing that they are important. And they have needs. And sometimes people need to know that you simply care and that I care. And not putting our chores and our plans above people. Oh, I have to do such and such week after week, never truly caring about people we don't know. Because ministry, as Paul places the priority here, ministry is about people. About people. The last month I was coming out of Safeway out there in the U District and uh, I saw a guy. He was sitting outside the door. It was a homeless young guy and I struck up a conversation with him. I don't always do so, but on this day it seemed like the thing to do and he hardly had anything. He was sitting on this bag and he had his dog next to him. And he talked to me about where he was staying. And many of them are very friendly. They're very open to talking. And I thought maybe there might be something that we could do to bring him off of the streets and uh, talk with him and see where he was at. But the fact of the matter was he liked being on the streets. He'd been on the streets for six or seven years and he'd only turned, he was about 20 years old. His family had kicked him out when he was about 13 or 14. He traveled around the country, hopping from train to train and sleeping in a nearby bush and diving in a dumpster for food. And even though we talked about his life and prayed together, he didn't know what true freedom was. He didn't know what it was to be truly free and free from guilt and the consequences of sin. They want to have a free life. They don't want to be bound in some home. That was his idea. He liked that freedom without constraints that he could do whatever he wanted to do. But he was in bondage to sin in his heart. And many people are like that. They have needs and we walk right by them and we, we fail to see that they have something that they need. Maybe there's a hurt. It's a well-known song whose words go, Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they grow through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries. Only Jesus hears. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, he's the open door. When will we realize people need the Lord? When you ask someone, how are you? Do you really care? How are they? You ever talk talk to somebody who doesn't have something? Maybe they're a stranger. Maybe somebody would just stop and listen to them. True ministry is about planning for people. To make time for people. Secondly, ministry is about seeing opportunities. Seeing opportunities. As I mentioned before, Paul says, I'll remain, verse 8, in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Exactly a year after he writes this, he is in 
Ephesus for Pentecost because there's a wide door of service. And he says there's a door of service. The metaphor is used in Colossians 4.3 where he says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up for us a door for the word. Or in 2 Corinthians 2.12, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord. He went to Ephesus not because, oh, that's a cool place to go. I've never been there before. Or the weather is nice. Or they have creature comforts that appeal to Paul. No, Ephesus had a great idolatrous system that permeated the city. In the center of the city was the famous temple of Diana that paraded its prostitutes and perversion, which was not only tolerated, it was promoted in the city. There are enemies of Christians and persecution from the Jews. There were enemies of Christians from those who were the Gentiles and they fought among each other. In the city, there were occult practitioners, there, were, there was uh, demonism, there was idolatry and superstition, there was racism, religious animosity. It was all considered as a part of this pagan, common, and considered normal type of lifestyle that permeated Ephesus. No New Testament church had more direct opposition than the one at Ephesus. But to Paul, he looked at this and saw this as an opportunity, a great opportunity, a wide open door of ministry. And he began and he went to Ephesus and he straightened out the false teachers. He began to teach theology to some of the new believers and he began to preach in the synagogues. And it caused an uproar. It caused an uproar within the city. Demetrius, a, a man who was a silversmith, it says in Acts 19.24, he made silver shrines for Artemis. And he was making good business, it says in Acts 19. He was making good business. And here Paul comes along and begins to share the gospel and people begin to convert and come to know Christ. And Demetrius, he's upset and he gets together all the workmen of similar trades. And he says this in verse 25. Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis be regarded as worthless. And so he begins a riot. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our affliction which came to us in Asia the Roman province in which Ephesus is located, that we were burdened excessively. They despaired, it says, even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we might not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from such or so great a peril of death. He didn't mind. It wasn't a concern of his that he might be killed for going to Ephesus. And the problem is not that there aren't enough opportunities to serve. Some people walk around saying, well, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I, I don't have any place to serve. 
Oftentimes it's the willingness of people to serve in whatever area it might be that God might call them to and simply opening our eyes to see those opportunities. And some are not willing to make the sacrifice that comes with the investment of time when it comes to serving and ministering to others. I remember in seminary, they'd look at us seminary students and some seminary students, they might be starting to look for a ministry and they'd have a hard time. Why? Because so-and-so, you know, you don't have enough experience. They want three years or five years or whatever of experience and they didn't know very much, etc. And they always tell us in seminary, you have trouble finding a job? then you'll never have trouble being unemployed on the mission field. You can go there. Don't have a job? Have trouble finding a pastorate? Go to the mission field. There are always opportunities. But it may cost you. It will cost you. It'll be difficult. It won't be easy. But Paul looked at mountains and he didn't see them as barriers. He looked at mountains and he saw them as mountains to climb, as challenges because we serve God. Yeah, there's a missionary named John Patton. He was a university student in Scotland. God called him to missionary work in the New Hebrides. You might remember the story after graduation. After graduation, he lived in the 1800s. He, He got married and he and his bride, they sailed into the southwest Pacific and they began to work among the cannibals in the island of Tana where he landed on November 5th, 1858. Three months, just three months after their arrival, they had a son, Peter Robert Robson, born February 12th, 1859. Would have brought great joy. But 19 days later, his wife, his wife died from tropical fever, buried there. And after that 19 days, he would be a, a single father on an island among cannibals. What was he to do? Was he to return with his son? Well, just about 17 days after that, the Lord took his newborn son home. And he buried their graves and he had to sleep on, his, on their graves in order that the cannibals might not dig up the bodies and consume them. After almost four years, he continued to minister there. He continued to work there. Four years he left without seeing a single convert. Many years later, he got married and then his son, whom he had from the next marriage, came back to Tana and he began working among these people and he eventually saw the entire island come to Christ. And then the elder, the elder Patton, came back and revisited the island and the chief of the former cannibals asked the missionary, asked the missionary, who was that great army we saw that surrounded your hut every night? And he realized that it was the angels of God who had surrounded him and he had opened their eyes so that they might see. It was because of his faithful work and that of his son when he left New Hebrides for the last time after ministering on another island as well, it was reported that he said with tears, quote, I don't know of one native on these islands who has not made 
a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Simply because ministry may be difficult or dangerous, because there may be enemies who may want to take one's life, because there are challenges financially, because it is inconvenient, because of the food or the climate or the lack of Western comforts, doesn't mean the door is closed. And it shouldn't tell us by any means as a Christian, I shouldn't do this. Maybe you even remember about six months ago when the Nakamuras came back. And during that first week when they came back, they stayed with me and we gave Carrie, and they're a family that our church supports as a missionary family. Carrie stood up here and I asked her if she would give a few minutes of a report and what she would, what was happening with her family having to evacuate out of the earthquake and the nuclear disaster that was coming. And I don't know if you remember what she said, but I'll probably always remember. She said that Richard stayed behind. Do you remember? He stayed behind to go into the zone where there were those who were affected by the nuclear plant at Fukushima. And she said this statement. She said, and I am so happy that he was able to go into that area. And I thought about that later on and I just wanted to make sure. So later on I said, Carrie, you know, you mentioned that you were happy that he was able to stay behind and that he had to, you had to separate as a family and he had the opportunity to go there. And you said this, is that right? She said, That's right. I really am happy that he was able to go and minister to those people and serve those people. And I thought so much about that because you see, those of you who know their family, they have three-year-old little Nathan and they have 16-year-old Alicia. And their family has five kids. And I thought to myself, you know, radioactivity doesn't kill you right away, but it sure shortens the lives of people. Depending upon your level of exposure, of course, he was in an area in which he had to suit all up. And of course, there were decontamination procedures that he had to go through every time he'd get out of the car, get into the car, ways that you would take off your clothes, etc., so that they wouldn't become contaminated, etc., etc. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many people, I wonder how many of you would say to your spouse, you know what, those people need to know Jesus. Even though we have a three-year-old, they need to know Jesus. They may not live very long. A few years, perhaps, they need to know Jesus now. Their need is great. Their burden is heavy because they've lost everything. What's more important? Being away for a couple of months from each other? I'm not saying it was at all easy. And I'm not saying that everybody doesn't have a different calling, but... God opened wide the door of opportunity for them to serve. And Richard saw many people, seeds were planted, people turning to God. So what is it, even here, when we choose to serve God, what is the standard of how we decide whether or not it's okay? Is it worth my time? 
Is it worth my life? Is it worth my sacrifice that the God of the universe asks me if I could serve here or do that? What do we say? Do we say, is it safe? Is it convenient? Is it going to mess up my schedule? How are my lessons for this or that going to be affected? What do we say? Do we say, boy, I don't know, or I'm going to let someone else decide for me? Or do we say, you know what, one night a month is too much? Do we say that it's going to be too costly? Was it wrong for him to leave his family for two months to place his life in danger? Might it be that God might call you to... Take extra time out of your schedule because there's a widow down the street. I remember the Lord always brought, and I always enjoy those who are older, always a widow down the street from where I was in a house. And sometimes I just like to go as a boy and sit and have a cup of milk. That's when I learned she always served me a cup of whole milk, how yucky it was. Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Serving God may mean you may not have as many evenings or may not see as many movies or be able to take whatever lessons or may not always see your family on a night that you would like to. But serving God, God may have opportunities. And if we open our eyes, adversaries may be there, but they shouldn't prevent us from desiring that this is the sacrifice God has asked of us. Thirdly, ministry is about encouragement. Verse 10. Ministry is about encouragement. Now, Timothy comes. See that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work. So also am I. So let no one despise him. His instructions to the Corinthian church were simple. And they were, don't scare Timothy. Don't scare Timothy. Why would he say that? Well, we look in the pastoral epistles, what do we say? A profile of Timothy? Take an educated guess. Timothy was probably about mm, in his 20s. He's probably in about his 20s. And we find in First and Second Timothy, he was sort of a timid kind of a pastor. He was sort of a, a guy who needed a lot of directions. Paul had to write all of these things to him. He had to tell him exactly how are you going to address those who are older? How are you going to talk to those who are younger? What sort of things you needed to take care of in the church? He was uh, somewhat frail. His health wasn't so good. Take a little wine for your stomach problems. Be sure you don't let your youthful desires get the better of you. And Timothy, Timothy, timid little Timothy, don't scare Timothy. Don't discourage him. Everybody knew who Timothy was. Timothy was always on the first of the letters that many of Paul's writings were. Second Corinthians and Colossians, Philippians and Thessalonians. Not to mention the books of First and Second Thessalonians, and even in the letter to Philemon, Timothy's name is mentioned. But you see, since there were some in the Corinthian church who had a problem with Paul, and here was Paul's messenger coming, it sure would be a whole lot easier to pick on the messenger and to give him some lip, not take on Paul. And Paul says, don't abuse Timothy, don't verbally abuse or treat him well. Don't scare him. Be not good. You ever been in the, in the middle? 
between two people, two feuding parties? Ever been the in-between person between your, your parents and your spouse? Or two friends? Maybe your brother and your sister? Maybe between a husband and a wife? It's not an easy place to be. Often very stressful. Sometimes between a rock and a hard place. And the reason why Paul says don't discourage him is because he is doing the Lord's work. As I am also. I mean, if it were us, we might say, don't come down on him. It's just his first time delivering my letters. He's just a young guy. Doesn't really know much. He gets his feelings hurt easy. But what does he say? He is doing the Lord's work. Paul doesn't put Timothy down. He lifts him up and they are on the same level. Treat him respectfully because he is doing the work of God. It doesn't matter if he's young or old or feeble or strong or experienced or inexperienced. It's because Timothy is doing the Lord's work. And so don't despise him, it says. It means to look down. It means to scorn or disregard or to treat with contempt and rejection. Don't discourage him. Instead, encourage him and send him on his way in peace. I mean, it's easy to look at people like that. To say, oh, you don't know anything. He's just a messenger. It's easy to cut them down. Paul wanted them to send him off in peace and to encourage him. Because encouragement means so very much. I remember when I first began as pastoring this church, things weren't as good and morale wasn't so, so high and it was... It was no assistant like James to help, no Ruth and to help with the administrative things. We didn't have de- deacons and things were challenging. But every so often I would get together with a pastor from Highlands Community Church. And he wouldn't be the one who would be giving me all of these ad- things, that advice and things like that. But what he would tell me, he would tell me stories about many years ago when he first started and some of the things he would say, and etc., and we'd laugh, and I'd be able to relate. Such an encouragement to me in those early years. It didn't take much of his time. It didn't take much money, but it can mean a lot to people. Encouragement goes a long way. These days, we have a lot of things on the news, a lot of legislation that is being passed against something that is opposite of encouragement, and that is bullying. The words that people say can change lives or destroy them. People are sometimes emboldened by anonymity. There was a case in the New York Times about an individual named Abraham Biggs a few years ago. Some people champion online communities chat rooms and things like that because they say it encourages this social interaction while others differ because it creates a reality that is not very positive many times and in this case he had posted that was his family he had posted some 2300 messages a 19 year old college student and many of his postings were chronicles of his own personal pain And in 2008, he hinted at his desire to end his life. And he posted one final note. 
And he swallowed a medley of pills and then he directed all of those on the online community to watch as he died. And what was especially horrifying was that investigators, when they went in to the site, they saw that there were 181 people watching and many of them were typing things like LOL, laugh out loud on the screen. In an interview with the New York Times, Jeffrey Cole, who's a professor who studies technology's effects on society, the USC, he said, online communities are like the crowd outside the building with a guy on the ledge and sometimes there is someone who gets involved and tries to talk him down. Often the crowd chants, jump, jump. They can enable suicide or help prevent it. In the same interview, he later adds, the anonymous nature of these communities, he later adds, emboldens the meanness or callousness of the people on these sites. Rarely does it bring out greater compassion or consideration, unquote. Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries. Only Jesus hears. Everyone, every one of us can use encouragement. You can be young, you can be old, you can be rich, you can be poor. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't take much money. It doesn't take any time, hardly. But to encourage someone else, for those who are parents, your spiritual encouragement means a great deal to those who are your children. John Patton, as I shared with you, the missionary to the New Hebrides, wrote about his father. He used to do, as, his, as he was a young boy, he used to go and sit outside of his father's bedroom at night and listen to him pray. He wrote, quote, If everything else in religion were by some accident blotted out, my soul would go back to those days of reality. For 60 years, my father kept up the practice of family prayer. No day passed without it, no hurry for business, no arrival of friends, no trouble or sorrow. No joy or excitement ever prevented us from kneeling round the family altar while our high priest offered himself and his children to God. Patton's father wasn't some pastor or someone in the clergy. He was a farm laborer. We fathers and mothers are very busy these days, he writes. And when Patton left for the mission field in the New Hebrides, he writes about his relationship between father and son. And he said, My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsel and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart, as if it were there but yesterday, and tears are in my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever memory steals me away to the scene. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and solemnly said, 
God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer and tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when, about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and I saw him still standing with his head uncovered where I had left him gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. It is the encouragement of a parent, encouragement of a father, encouragement of someone that we all respect and look up to that has an impact upon our life. And here Paul wanted Timothy to have that encouragement as well. Because ministry is about people. Planning to make plans for people. And ministry is about seeing opportunities of doors wide open, whether it is convenient or inconvenient. Whether it takes time or requires sacrifice, whether it requires money, whether it requires being away. Opportunities are wide open. And ministry is about encouragement. As Paul wanted not only Timothy here, but he encouraged Apollos as well. We don't know why, but Apollos would come later. But he wanted that encouragement for them to know that they were cared for, that he was going to send to them Timothy and Apollos, and he was going to come. Why? So that he could spend time with them. That's what the love of God compels us to do. To love people that we might encourage them, pray for them, sacrifice for them. And that is what will make an effective minister. Let's bow together in prayer. Well, Father, I think so often we are so individualistic, so independent so filled with our own plans that we forget about people, caring for people, seeing the needs of others. Every day they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care going who knows where. People need you, O oh God, and we pray that we might not ever be dissuaded from ministry because it is difficult. But, Father, may we rise to the occasion as men and women of God to shine the love of Jesus for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.